Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are very, very pumped up for our guests today. And I normally say excited, so I was trying to say something different. <laughs> good, good new word. <laughs> pumped. I'm, pumped. I'm, I'm actually super pumped because I feel like we've been waiting forever to talk to Ed Report. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, we talk about Ed Reports all the time, right? And we just throw it out there like, all green on ed reports. And we I, we pretend like our audience knows what that means. And some of them probably do, but there are probably some people that don't. So, um, and even if they do know, I think it's it'll be exciting to dig in a little more of like, what does, what really happens behind the scenes in ed reports? Yeah. <laughs> we are going to unveil the curtain today. Yeah. So we are very excited. <laughs> we have two of our ed report friends here with us. We have Jess Box and Trisha Parker. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited for the conversation as well. Pumped. Um, <laughs> yes, very pumped. <laughs> um, would, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, what you do at EdReports, and also what led you to EdReports? So if you are a teacher or an administrator, we always like to hear a little bit about you know, your journey and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. I can start. I'm Jess. I am our director of field services at EdReports. So I lead the team of folks who work with state and district partners in the field, supporting them to use our reviews and reports as part of strong instructional materials initiatives, whether that's an adoption, conducting a local review, sort of building awareness around why materials matter, um, lots of great work with educators in the field. Um, I started my career as a fourth grade teacher in Washington, D.C., back before the Common Core um, <laughs> at a time when I had very poor quality curricula um, available to me. And so I spent a lot of my time as a teacher creating my own materials, which I enjoyed. Um, I, you know, I thought I did a good job. I did struggle as an elementary school teacher to do a good job across subject areas. So in each year I'd be like, <laughs> I am nailing math this year, or I'm nailing ELA this year. And um, you know, struggling to do consistently well designing my own materials across the board. Um, so I, around the time of the transition to the Common Core Standards, um, moved into first a teacher coaching role and then moved into a role supporting a collaborative of educators across DC around the transition to the Common Core. And through that work really began to realize the importance of the role of instructional materials and saw that especially as we were transitioning to new standards, um, you know, there was a real need for teachers to have something that was helping them meet the bar of these new standards. Um, yeah. So I came to EdReports. I was working with another nonprofit um, at the time that EdReports was founded. We were working with school districts around the country, helping them with their transition to Common Core. And we were finding, unsurprisingly, that most did not have materials that aligned to the new standards. And so we were sort of helping them in that space. And I remember very vividly the day that EdReports published the first math reviews um, because it was so exciting to have like a group of educators who had spent all this time in materials really reviewing them rigorously and had found, like I was finding more anecdotally, that the, the materials in the market weren't, weren't um, really cutting, weren't really cutting it. So was really excited to join the team um, and be a part of this great work. 
That's exciting. And, and go fourth grade, right? Every, every, <laughs> every good person on our podcast, like, which I mean, everyone, every, <laughs> by, I mean, good. I mean, every single guest we've had started out as a teacher of some sort. <laughs> I love fourth graders. So it's such a good age of, you know, sort of growing past being really dependent on you and really starting to be independent. And they grow so much in that year. Yes. Oh, love it. Trisha, welcome. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, so I'm Trisha Parker. I am the senior ELA content specialist with Ed Reports. I've been here now for, oh gosh, four and a half years. My how time flies when you're having fun. Right. And uh, I started my career as an elementary teacher also, um, teaching third grade. And uh, then eventually moved into fourth and fifth. I had a combination gifted room with fourth and fifth graders and um, I tried to stay ahead of them all year. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, but it was it was really wonderful, except that I just constantly felt like I struggled to make sure that that what we had was, you know, in terms of materials was working. And so I also spent a lot of time um, trying to write my own curricula. Um, trying to come up with activities that were meaningful. We had a science curricula that um, they had stopped buying the kids for. And so I would have to try to describe for the students what the science activity would look oh like. We actually had, right? The things That's so sad. <laughs> and after my first year of doing that, I refused to use the tubs and we shared them across grades. Oh my gosh. And so I said to one of my co-teachers, um, I'm not using the science tubs anymore. And you would have thought I'd have said, like, you know, <laughs> I'm leaving the country to become, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, she uh, was aghast. And I said, these are horrible. This is not doing anything for kids. And so even as a relatively new baby teacher who was pretty sure I knew everything, um, <laughs> I realized that these were not good. And so I feel like I should just write apology notes to so many years worth of students. Um, but anyway, so um, after spending time in the classroom, I went on to the Nebraska State Department of Education as the ELA director, where I spent seven years. Um, and my very first task was to take a look at the Common Core state standards and was immediately informed, but we won't be adopting them. And Nebraska notoriously has oh not adopted. <laughs> but you still need to know them really well because we're going to start standards revision in a couple of years and you need to know them, but we're not adopting them. And so it was <laughs> a really interesting balance. We had the opportunity to provide feedback, to be a part of that group. Um, and Nebraska never has adopted. Uh, we did adopt new standards in 2014. And then um, after that, I decided, you know, we'd done all of the implementation and I needed a new challenge. I was ready to move into something um, different. And I also really was frustrated by the fact that Nebraska, like many other states, is a local control state. It's, it's a gift and a terrible thing at, at once. And um, because we weren't allowed to talk to districts about instructional materials. And so we were as, as, the, as, as the State Department of Ed. Yes. Right OK, we, we could talk about, um, you know, certain methodologies. We could talk about strategies. I could go out and give workshops all day long on strategies, but we weren't really allowed to interact with publishers or talk about mm. the programs. And that was frustrating to me because I watched so many districts, especially tiny little districts that have one teacher for two grades, right, who were frustrated and angry because we couldn't give them any help. And so um, at, just as I had transitioned or, or was getting ready to to find something new, um, 
one of my friends who I had met through our national organization um, sent me a job posting, and it was for this position at Ed Reports. And, you know, four and a half later, years later, here I am. So, um, and it was exciting, too, because now we've had the opportunity to work with the Nebraska Department of Education again. Um, and their chief academic officer has said many times, you know, local control isn't an excuse for not taking leadership. Um, and so they've done a lot of work now and actually have um, worked really hard to get really good instructional materials into our state. So small wins, actually That's huge exciting. wins, right? I'm <laughs> thinking it just, it came full circle. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So I'm wondering, you guys talked a little bit about how you got to Ed Reports, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where Ed Reports came from. Like, how did it even become a thing? Why is it important? Absolutely. So when the Common Core Standards were published in 2010, um, of course, all of the publishers were scrambling to apparently print stickers that stated that they were aligned to the Common Core Stickers. Right? <laughs> you know them. Lop yes. those stickers oh. on the front of the book. <laughs> and so there were there was a very smart group of people that had some different conversations, but ultimately there was a conversation that took place in 2011, and um, it was around the fact that we now had these national standards that most states had adopt adopted or nationally recognized. They weren't really national standards, and that there needed to be instructional materials that would support those new standards and the shifts within those standards. Um, because we know that there's a lot asked of teachers and to ask them to bring current materials up to that level um, was going to be really difficult. And so there were some great folks, um, Sal Khan of Khan Academy, uh, Maria Clave, who's the president of Harvey Mudd College, Carol Dweck, who a lot of us know from her mindset work, um, they all came together. There were governors and superintendents and all kinds of really, really intelligent people who care about kids. And they came together to talk about what was needed to support uh, teachers and students and to meet the standards. And they decided that they needed a new way to vet materials. And so what was born of that was this consumer reports style of looking at materials being very um, factual about it, presenting what's there, what's not there, and then, um, you know, presenting them for free so that school districts could make some intelligent decisions as they were purchasing um, and not just relying on the information that was provided by publishers. So in March 2015, we just celebrated our birthday, in fact, uh, we published our first set of math reports, and I, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really cool is just the design process of those um, review tools. We started with K-8 math and expanded from there, um, first into ELA and now into science as well. But that process is really rigorous in, in terms of working with um, a big group of experts and educators to develop those tools. So it's not like we just jumped in in all content areas, it's really been a growth over time, starting with those, those math reports in 2015. So I'm curious, um, well, happy birthday, by the way, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like, what does Ed Reports, uh, where does Ed Reports stand on where materials matter? So like, what comprises high quality instructional materials? 
Or maybe I should ask about, should I ask about your review process? Would that get us to the same answer or no? I think starting big picture is great. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I'm going to answer that like two parts of that question that I heard. First is if we believe that materials are incredibly important and research supports that. Um, so really that interaction of the teacher, the student, and the content that they are teaching is what determines what a student's experience and a student's learning is in the classroom. Um, we also know that teachers do not consistently have access to great materials. Um, so one report said that teachers spend about seven to 12 hours a week searching for or creating materials, spending a lot of time online trying to sort of pull things together as Trisha and I both Girl, talked about. We've, we've all our, been there. <laughs> in our own experience. And we also know that like what's online is not necessarily really high quality and aligned. There was a 2019 report from Fordham Institute that of the, they reviewed a lot of the you know, big names in online materials and found that about 62% of them were either showed weak alignment or no alignment to the standards. And Can I also that, jump in and yeah. say that like that uh, that's an excellent point. And the the teachers you like you like availability of materials is wider that way. And also the um preparation is easier in materials that are lower quality. So I just want to like name that because mm. I think that that's something that, you know, as listeners, I know um, that we've heard from listeners that it's, you know, you, using the quote previous materials to high quality materials, it's been easier to teach, but it's easier to teach because it's different like preparation work, like it's different intellectual work. So I just wanted to like name that because that's something that has been coming up as a trend in um, as I've noticed, like in some of the, like the Natalie Wexler Facebook groups or things like that, that I've, you mm -hmm. know, I'm a part of. And I, I think that that's important to name that it, it's, it's a different, it's different. It's a big shift in terms of what you're spending your time doing as a teacher. So that time spent like pulling things online, right. pulling things together, your work is really like figuring out, you know, what is the content? What are the activities that I'm going to teach? Or as if you're working from a high quality set of materials, you're spending your, your intellectual time preparing for how do I make this come alive for my students? How do I, you know, dig into what students are producing and really understand what they're getting and what they're not so I can make adjustments to my lesson the next day? It's still intellectual work, but in a really different way. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in COVID in particular, I continue to hear from folks in the field that where there are strong materials, um, teachers and students are experiencing much mo more coherence as we shift between all of these different instructional models. And so it's been really powerful to see, you know, it's hard to continue an investment in instructional materials when so much is up in the air educationally, but have been excited to hear from teachers and other leaders within the education space that materials are actually helping um, in that context and really helping for equity to ensure that all kids are getting the chance to work with grade level content. So we could go on and on because we are really passionate <laughs> about what materials matter. Um, but I will sort of pause there. But I think the next thing you asked, Lori, that's really um, important, and then we'll sort of tie to our review process, is what makes high-quality materials. Um, so at Ed Reports, the first thing we look for is standards alignment um, and really making sure that materials are rigorous and meet that bar for the standards for the grade level. We also look at other indicators of quality, which really reflect the instructional shifts that the standards require. So in ELA, a real focus on high quality, complex texts, 
um, great text-dependent questions and tasks that build over time and deepen students' knowledge of what they're learning. That focus, I just said it, on building knowledge to make sure that um, texts are organized around topics and really building on each other um, coherently over time to build students' knowledge. So our first two, we have a gateway system, which we can talk more about in a minute. Our first two gateways are really around standards alignment and indicators of quality. And then our third is focused on usability factors. So that's where we look at teacher supports. We look at the assessment components that are um, in the materials. We look at student supports. And there's a lot we can look at beyond standards alignment that really comes into that third gateway. I'm curious, and this might take us like on a little sidebar for a moment, but I know, and I was like, I'm just, I have so many questions for you all because I'm really excited to be here. Um, in, in terms of like standards alignment, if you, like, if you heard a teacher say, this, the, this curricula doesn't align with the standards for my state, how, like, what does that mean? Because I don't always understand that statement. Is it because folks have taken the standards and and adjusted them for their state? And I think what I'm kind of thinking of, Tricia, is that beginning conversation with you um, and how you introduced yourself. Would Am I making sense in that question? <laughs> Absolutely. Jess, do you want to go with it or do you want me to? Sure, I can. I, I've got two examples come right to mind. Okay. Um, one is Nebraska. So Nebraska, um, we have worked with and they actually use... Um, they have a Nebraska Materials Matter website that pulls in data from our reports. And so what they have done is really created these crosswalk documents that help illustrate the alignment of Nebraska state standards with what we are looking for in our reports. So they have done at the state level some deep analysis to show that like the things that are in Ed Reports reviews of materials reflect the pillars of their standards. And so they are leaning on that review as a starting place. And there may be things that, you know, a district needs to slightly adapt or shift once the materials are adopted, but they've found enough alignment that, that they're looking at that same criteria. Okay. To your question though, Lori, some states also add their own standards. So California traditionally added some California specific standards. And if materials have not been, if a publisher has not made a version of those materials that are California specific, they may not have those additional California specific standards, which would mean that you know, a program might not fully reflect the breadth of California standards. Um, my knowledge there is a few years old, but I think it's a smaller percentage of the standards, you know, around 10% that are different or an add-on. Um, so the bulk of the program might still be aligned, but it doesn't reflect those state specific standards. And there are many other states that have done similar things. Got it. So it's more of just to capture what you're saying, it's more of a both and not like a, oh, we threw those other standards out. And now we're working with, quote, our state's standards. It's like our state has added or um, like, for example, California has added, but Nebraska may have just um, tweaked a bit. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it again, varies a lot state by state. There are some <laughs> states that have, you know, Florida just released new standards yep. that have some commonalities to their standards previously, which were reflective more of Common Core, but some differences. Um, so there are states that have done more significant rewrites. 
because we focus on a lot of the research that underpins the Common Core Standards, which is research from many years of, you know, what great ELA instruction looks like or what great math instruction looks like, um, I believe personally <laughs> that there are pillars in most states, there are still pillars of what we look for in those criteria mm -hmm. um, that are going to demonstrate sort of big picture alignment, even if there are specific standards that you've, you've got to make some change around. Um, but that's, that's my two cents is I think yeah, there's some, there's some strong research there that, um, you know, Trisha, you may be able to add on. Yeah, sure. Um, I think about specifically in ELA, there are certain things that we've, we've the science of reading that, you know, all of this research that we use to use to build the tools and to build our processes, that there's certain things we know have to happen in a certain order, particularly in ELA, in order for students to learn how to read. And that doesn't change whether you're in Louisiana or Nebraska or Alaska. They still have to learn sounds. <laughs> they still have to learn letters. Like there's very specific things that have to occur. And so we don't see as many um, hiccups with that across grade levels as much as we do with things like um, does a program have cursive handwriting in it? You know, some states have specifically called that out in their standards, whereas other states are not as, as concerned about it. Um, they just want students to write legibly. So, you know, that would be something that you would want to read the indicator reports carefully and, and inquire about that. Does this program contain this or is this something we're going to have to supplement? But I think, like Jess said, there's certain pillars within mm -hmm. um, a content area that we know must stand and are common no matter where you're teaching. Thank you. That's really helpful to, to just like conceptualize and, and thank you for both like the big picture view and the deep dive examples. I think that's really helpful, especially for those listening who are, you know, all across the United States. And we even have some folks in Australia, right, Melissa? <laughs> we do. We do. <laughs> that's where um, you get outside of our... Yeah. Our knowledge. I don't I know. know Australia standards, unfortunately. It's not too, too many. <laughs> friends, but we do love our Australia friends. Um, you all reminded me of, um, I saw a Facebook post somewhere at some point where someone was talking about Ed Reports and they were like, well, it's just standards alignment. That's it. And, you know, it doesn't really take into consideration everything that um, students need to learn how to read, which is, I love that you just brought that up, Tricia. Um but I immediately found the Ed Reports application of Scarborough's Rope, and I was like, wrong. <laughs> you all are wrong. Um, so just wondering if there was anything else you all wanted to add in about that, because I just thought it was an, um, it's just interesting for me to, to think about that it's yeah. not just standards alignment, although that is a big part of it. Well, and um, yeah, so, you know, when you think about high quality materials, it's all of the things Jess said. And in ELA, we have, especially in K2, that focus on foundational skills. And you have to get it right there. And Scarborough's Rope and the Simple View of Reading really sort of describe that very clearly. And and it, I love Scarborough's Rope because it really illustrates that the strength of a student's ability to read is wound up in so many different things that are interwoven one with the other. And standards tend to parse those things out a little bit at times. Yeah. Um, and so we have to make sure that the way that they're being taught and that, that the materials support having those, those elements there and done in such a way that um, it will create the best opportunity for students to become strong readers writers, communicators, and so on. And so, um, 
we have looked deeply for a long time at Scarborough's Rope, at, you know, all of the the conversations that have been happening around the science of reading. And I just want to say, mm-hmm. I am so grateful. And I've listened to several episodes of your podcast where folks have talked about that um, specifically. And we're so grateful that there's this new heightened focus on research and on knowing better and doing better, right? And so um, we have been looking at that in terms of our tools so that we can help people to understand where that does come in. And so that we have a new um, blog post, we have a new graphic that really intricately describes where that's found. But to understand that, you have to know that we've recently made some revisions to our tool We um, are a learning and growing organization. If we're not continuously learning and growing, then, you know, we're not we're not following our best practices. And so we've updated some things in the tool. And one of the things that we've done in the K2 tool is to update the foundational skills section. And so you'll see um, that those indicators are teased out. You can see all kinds of Romanettes in that graphic. Um, where they're teased out by individual pieces so that people can better understand as they read our reports what's there and what's not there in a particular program. And I think this is going to be a game changer in terms of that conversation you were talking about, Melissa, seeing in social media where folks have um, misunderstood how we support the science of reading in our reports. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we need to have those those conversations because there's so many of us that weren't taught in our teacher prep programs about the science of reading, about, you know, how to teach reading explicitly. I was taught to teach kids to love reading, mm-hmm. but not necessarily really taught how to teach reading. And so um, there's guilt and shame that's attached to that. And I think this is that place where we say, no, we can't, we don't shame our students for not knowing things. Why are we shaming ourselves? We expect them to learn and grow and we want to do that too. So, um, yes, we have these tools, this, uh, you know, the different components of um, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, all of that is wound up in those indicators in our reports. The other thing to understand about that too is the fact that this, the, Foundational skills section is the third section of our first gateway for both K2 and 3.5. And it's one section of a total program. And that's really hard when we know that that's so very important. And the way that we've indicated that that is important is that it's a fail-safe. If a program does not pass that third section, the review stops in its tracks and does not go forward. And so if you have terrible foundational skills, you don't teach any of it, you're not moving forward in the in the ad reports review. So is that helpful too much information? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's oh, helpful. Great. <laughs> and you know what else is helpful? So if anybody's listening to the podcast and they have an opportunity to do this, um, go to ad reports and pull up the uh, the review tools because it's helpful to see the graph, like I just did that while you were talking. So it's really helpful to see the step one, step two, and the gateways and to see the color coding within that. So as you were speaking, I was visualizing how you get through the green gateways or, um, you know, if yellow, what does that truly mean? Um, So that was really helpful. (laughs) Okay, good. Yes. So who does these reviews? Yeah. (laughs) 
How do these happen? Oh, that's it just It's just you two? It's just Jess. <laughs> Jess and I hang out with a lot of coffee. A lot of <laughs> So the thing that I love the most and what really drew me to EdReports is that we are a for-educator, by-educator organization. Um, our work is done with educator teams of about five people. Uh, lots of diversity in, in those um, teams. We have folks literally from all 50 states, I think, that have participated at some point or another in our reviews. Um, and, and the thing is that they are grade band experts. So they've taught in that grade band. Um, we have a large number of coaches. Uh, we have administrators who are, you know, formerly there in the classroom, um, higher ed folks. So we just have all kinds of different people who come together to do these reviews. Um, and they take about four to six months to do. We really only look at a, at two or three indicators per week, and that allows the educator reviewers to go in and really focus in on specific slices of the program rather than trying to look at everything at once. It's sort of like when you grade writing, you know, sometimes <laughs> oh, you oh, can yeah. get lost <laughs> in the weeds. And so we give them time to get lost in the weeds because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? And so we want to have them in that deeply. Uh, there's internal calibration that happens. We work with the educator teams as they're reviewing. We watch across, for example, a K-5 program. We have two separate teams that review um, the K-2 grade band and then the 3-5 grade band. And we also have another team that reviews only those foundational skills indicators. And this special focus team is made up of individuals who are highly trained, who deeply understand the science of reading, who deeply understand what needs to be in a program for um, students to learn to read, and they only review those indicators. And so we really, by the time we are done with a review, we have at least 10 educator reviewers who have been in those materials providing information. And then we work within the internal team to look across the reports to make sure that the information makes sense um, sometimes we'll see differences across grade bands. And we really want to make sure that everything makes sense and that by the time it gets to the end user, to you, that you really can read it and understand and make sense of it as you're trying to make decisions about how to spend millions of dollars in your district. Right. And that matters. So um, they meet weekly. They uh, The educators review on their own. They... Uh, gather evidence from the materials. They put it into a Google Doc. They come together and have an hour-long meeting every week, come to census on ratings for a particular indicator or set of indicators, and then they um, re they re revisit the indicators that they're getting ready to review next, talk amongst themselves, calibrate, make sure they understand what they're looking for, and dive back in on two or three new indicators. And so that happens week after week over the course of about usually say four to five months. Can I, can I jump in with like a little uh, question around, can you take us through a very basic example? Like, can you take us through, like, for example, I, maybe I'm grabbing a curriculum off the shelf. I'm going to walk in to your ed reports office and I'm saying, Jess and Trisha, this needs to go through a review. Can you readers digest like version of What's the first thing that happens? Like very specifically gateway one and then, oh, I passed gateway one. What's gateway two? Like, am, can you like do that? Not in a way that's like takes us a year and a half, but just a brief. 
you don't want to take four to six months for the explanation. <laughs> okay. We don't have four to six months right now on this podcast. So well, the first thing that we do when, because we have a lot of publishers that approach us and ask us. And the first thing we do is we make sure that they claim standards alignment and that it's a comprehensive year long program with the exception of our foundational skills reviews, which is kind of a side thing. Um, and those are supplemental, so it's a slightly different, but they still have to claim standards alignment. We go in. We do not necessarily review 1A, then 1B, then 1C. Um, what we do is we cluster indicators. So they might, a set of reviewers might review 1A, 1B, and 2A because those all deal with texts specifically. Got and it. so while you're looking at texts, it makes sense to gather information about texts. And, and when I'm looking at text, am I looking at um, access to grade level text, texts that are building knowledge on a topic? Like, can you, yes. can you elaborate on? Okay. <laughs> All of that. We're looking first and foremost <laughs> for high quality texts in ELA because we know that that's where a strong foundation is built. If you have garbage texts, you cannot you can have all the best teaching methods in the world and you're not going to to have students performing well um and so we look at high quality texts we look at the rigor of the texts how they can be used in instruction we look to see that there's a match between the types the text types and genres that are called for in the standards we also make sure that students are engaging in a volume of reading and I know when Sue Pimentel was on your podcast, she talked about that volume of reading, right? And how important it is that students are surrounded by texts that immerse them in a topic so that they really become experts on that topic to the degree that they can. Because what happens is there's concepts and vocabulary that reach across multiple texts if the text sets are constructed well, that's 2A, <laughs> and they work well together to help students begin to recognize that they can put these concepts together and form new information and have new ideas and think about things in a different way. And we hope that ultimately they'll be able to transfer some of that to other areas of their learning, to science and social studies and so on, um, into their lives, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, so that's that's what we look for in the text. We also look at the complexity of the texts, all three aspects of complexity. We look for how the texts grow across the year. What are the texts that are available? Is there time for um, independent reading? Is there a plan for independent reading rather than um, teachers just saying, okay, it's dear time. We're all going to drop everything and read. And I, I say this to make fun because I did that. I know. Totally. I did I'm so sorry to all my students who are probably not listening because you all fled to other professions. Like, I'm so sorry. But we really look for all of those aspects that we know. Kids have to read to learn to read. And so looking across all of those, those kinds of things. And then we look at how the questions support the texts, how writing is integrated and speaking and listening. And are students having that opportunity to really question and to be questioned and to think thoughtfully and provide evidence? And I think now more than ever in a media-saturated society, we have to have students who can do that and do it well. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think one addition, Laurie, to what you were asking is as we progress through that, if materials do not get a, uh, are not meeting the threshold for gateway one, they're not progressing to gateway two. And if they are not meeting the threshold in both of those gateways, they don't then progress to gateway three. So Trisha yes. talked about that failed safe around foundational skills. If you're not meeting the bar in 
you know, text quality and complexity or some other aspect of Gateway One, you're also not progressing. And so that really emphasizes our focus on if you don't reflect the basic tenets of grade level standards and grade level expectations, the additional parts of the review um, don't really matter because you're not getting to the basics of the grade level. Yeah. And that, that gateway one is for ELA, almost like an inventory. Do you have really high quality text? Do you have all of the things that you need to have about writing? Are there really solid questions? Um, you know, what are, what are your plans for integrating all of this? That's just the basics, right? And then when you get to gateway two, it's really that focus on the shifts and how it's implemented. So it's sort of like handing me a bunch of ingredients and handing Gordon Ramsay a bunch of ingredients, (laughs) right? Because I'm telling you what I produce will not be the same (laughs) as what he would produce. So, you know, it, that's where that gateway two really comes in. And so even though the reviewers actually do look at both gateway one and gateway two, we might not publish any of that gateway two review if they haven't at least met a certain threshold for a partially meets or for that yellow rating in gateway one. So when we say all green, because we say that all the time, time. (laughs) you are saying that this is what it means, right? That they've gone through all the gateways. They've met all the expectations in every part that you just talked about, Trisha. Is that right? Yeah. They've met a minimum threshold for the expectations. Um, And not all greens are created equally. Um, Each one has its own nuances. It has its own um, strengths. There is no perfect program I've met yet. I'm excited to meet the perfect program. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, but there's no, I think it was Bob Marzano who said there are no silver bullets, only silver BBs, right? We know there's no silver bullet out there. There's no one program that's the perfect thing. And so there may be, Um, As you look at Gateway 3, there may be places where um, students are going to not have certain supports that a district would have to provide. Or even as you look across, maybe their vocabulary instruction is not 100% the way we'd want it to be. So that's why it's so critical for consumers to take a look at the reports, um, either if you're in the middle of an adoption or if you've implemented and have a current set of materials to look across those. Um, to see where those places are that you might need to provide some additional support and to make sure that that part of the program doesn't fall apart. Because the gateway is really a roll-up. You know, we rate at the indicator level, which rolls up to the criteria, which rolls up to the gateway. So there could be a gap in a particular indicator within that gateway. So Mm. it's important to really drill all the way down. And as Trisha was talking about, it relates a lot to the work we do in the field, supporting districts with their adoption, um, because you could look across a lot of green materials and they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses in terms of places. You know, if I am a district serving a large number of students learning English, I'm going to want to really drill into those particular indicators that talk about supports for English learners and make sure that that is both strong and that the way the program approaches it reflects my vision as a, as a district for what great English learner supports look like. Um, So there are real differences, especially in ELA, when we think about instructional design and the pedagogy around um, the materials. And so being able to be super clear as a district in what's our vision for what great literacy instruction looks like, what does that mean in terms of the types of text students are reading, the types of topics, and then being able to drill into the indicators to say both of these programs are green. But when I look at this program, it's using 
full authentic text. And this program is using excerpts. And my vision as a district maybe goes one way or the other in terms of where we want to focus. And so really being clear in like, what's our vision for instruction? Who are our students? Who are our teachers? And what are our particular needs? Then helps guide your investigation of the materials to say, these are the ones that actually are going to best meet our needs. Um, even though there are other green programs that just reflect different pedagogy or different particular strengths. I think that conversation is so important because I think we so often are just hearing like, it's all green, so we're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, those nuances are just really important for districts to think about. Yeah. yeah and and it's why the adoption process is so important. Like mm-hmm. we are very passionate that materials matter. The actual process for adopting materials also really matters. If you're not taking the time to really invest significant time, resources, people toward determining what your instructional vision and priorities are, determining how different materials reflect that, really spending time digging in and investigating with a broad range of stakeholders across your system, it's not likely that you're going to get materials that are a perfect fit for your your needs. And if you're not engaging folks throughout that process, you could actually find ones that are a great fit for your needs, but you haven't engaged teachers throughout the process to get their input and to make sure that those closest to students' everyday experience are actually seeing that the materials meet their needs. So we work a lot with districts on how do you reimagine what an adoption process looks like um, that really engages folks across your system. Yeah. That's really important. I have to say, um, I felt like Baltimore did that really, really well when um, I was there with Melissa. And, you know, I remember sitting next to teachers and pouring over materials and not just listening to, you know, the folks from Wit and Wisdom or the the folks from uh, other places share, you know, their presentations, um, but really like being surrounded and immersed in a variety of materials that helped us to to make decisions about what would be best for our students in our district. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you could give some more examples. Cause I really, I thought that was really helpful just when you conceptualized like all greens aren't equal. And here's an example with like the, you know, the, the texts in terms of the, the books that students are reading or excerpts. Um, are there any other examples that I know I'm asking you on the fly, but are there any other examples you can think of um, that would help our listeners conceptualize like the idea that all greens are not equal? And that's not necessarily a, a good or a bad thing. It's just it's just how the that green meets your needs as a district. And, and we know there's lots of options out there. Yeah, a handful of other things that I think about. Um, In ELA, how streamlined materials are is a big differentiator. So we actually, in those tool revision um, that Trisha talked about, we have some new indicators that focus on bloat in particular in ELA materials because we know there are materials that pack a ton in. And so that's actually a challenge as a teacher to navigate, what do I prioritize? But when I'm working with districts, that's a big thing that folks consider. Are they a system that actually wants to have all of that content that is probably beyond what you can teach in a year to give teachers the ability to navigate that and pull in what they want? Or do you want a program that is more streamlined and structured and you've got sort of a clear path through the content? So that's a big distinguisher. Can I Um, jump in for a second on that? The other thing we've noted, um, we've seen a few times is where a publisher 
wants to please all masters. And so they include, <laughs> you can do this path or you could go down this path. Or if you really like this, you can go over and do this <laughs> thing. And it leaves teachers confused because they, they, it gels into one teacher guide. And so you have, it's like the ADD guide to teaching reading. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a problem. And so that's where that those those new indicators in Gateway 2, 2G and 2H come in. Thanks for like that. It reminds me of those books back in the day that I used to read, like the Choose Your Own Path. And it goes, <laughs> yes. and then turn to page 27. And it was always very confusing. But then I also wanted to know all the other paths. So... <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and what sure happens <laughs> you can choose your own path right away from alignment. Correct. Yeah. I feel like That's right. Melissa and I have sat in some of those. We won't say, but I feel like we've sat in some of those. I bet you have. Mm-hmm. I, I remember like actively eating a lot of chocolate during those presentations. <laughs> but I was very stressed. It made me very stressed out. <laughs> yep. Um, another big area where... I find districts distinguishing is what I mentioned before around English learner supports. Um, I think the way programs approach that can vary and the depth to which they, you know, a program that, that meets expectations is likely going to have some English learner supports, but what that looks like in the depth that we go into varies a lot. And so as more districts are really thinking about how to best serve that group of students, that's an area where folks spend a lot of time an area where we are increasingly providing evidence, but I also see um, districts doing some of their own investigation beyond what's included in our reports is in the representation and relevance of the texts and characters and authors. Um, So we again have some new indicators where we are providing more evidence in that area. We're also trying to bring more evidence into some of the indicators that Trisha mentioned around texts around, you know, what identities are represented, how are, um, characters of diverse perspectives being represented. But at this point, I would not say that like you can get every piece of information that you need in that area from an ed reports report. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we do in the field too is helping districts figure out what's included in the report and where might I need to do some of my own investigation, whether that's talking to the publisher to understand more, whether that is what you were talking about, Lori, really digging in with a group of teachers and pouring over the materials, perhaps conducting a pilot, you know, there's only so much that you can learn from our reports. Yep. We really encourage districts to know what are the additional things you're looking for or additional depth of information you're looking for so that as you use the reviews to winnow to a manageable set of choices, you know, there are many green materials now, which is a big improvement from five years ago, but you've got a wider choice. So how do you use the reports to winnow to say, you know, these three are, are likely ones we should consider in more depth. And then, no, we really want to explore what identities are represented through the texts. And we're going to do a deeper analysis ourselves across these three programs because that's a really important factor for us. And so we help districts sort of figure out what that path is beyond using our reviews as well. Well, and I think it's important to consider, too. Yes, we would love for you to go on and read the reports, look at things in depth, but reach out to our staff because, you know, we did this with Baltimore where they said, okay, talk to us about these three programs or these five programs. And, you know, sometimes it helps to be able to ask questions as you're comparing across and thinking about those. So we're not just here to like publish reports and say, good luck, have a good time, (laughs) make something good. You know, we're here to continue to support as well as, as best we can in a variety of different ways and at a variety of different levels. Um, to hope 
hopefully help you make an informed decision as a consumer. I was there for that Baltimore call, Trisha, and I have to say it was so, so helpful. <laughs> so. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Yes, you're welcome. Which makes a ton of sense because our folks on our ELA team, as Trisha is, um, you know, and the group of reviewers spend so much time with these products. And yep. yeah. there's a ton of information that we publish in the reports. But after spending six months digging in at that level of depth, there are going to be nuances and things that, you know, you know from that experience that... We cannot, the reports are already long. We can't add every single detail <laughs> that we have. So we've got a lot of context too that we're always happy to share and sort of talk through. You know, that's a lot of the great work we do in the field is how our ELA folks come and be able to talk about the nuances between different programs too, um, because they've spent that time with them. And literally living with them. I'm laughing because I'm looking over here at the materials <laughs> I've just boxed up from a former review that we're getting ready to ship. And then I've got a full bookcase of a review we're currently doing right now. So that's a good thing to know is that staff members um, on the ELA team and on the math team, there is a staff member or two who receives a full set of the materials. So we're actually in them as well. Yeah, that's important. One of the things I think the... um, like what you're all talking about is reminding me of is how when I was in Baltimore that the supports that Ed reports uh, provided in the reports, like the information and then the supports throughout the process really helped me to reimagine and re-understand some of the things that you just shared. Like, for example, um, supports for our English language learners. Like, what does that actually look like? Previous to high quality instructional materials, I don't think I could have answered that question. Um, like supports for or information about texts and and really what are solid grade level texts and and how do we create text sets or um, materials that grow over time to support the students understanding and building knowledge. And again, like provide those mirrors and windows. I'm always, I'm obsessed with talking about that, but I don't, again, I don't think that I could have really answered that before uh, you're before going through the adoption process with Baltimore and, and seeing those high quality materials. So would you mind sharing a little bit about, you have an adoption steps resource Would you mind sharing a little bit about how it helps districts on their journey to high-quality instructional materials? Absolutely. Um, So on our website, we do have a resource. If you hover over resources at the top of the page, um, you will see some COVID resources, which are specific to our current context, and then you'll see our adoption steps feature. So when you click there, it's organized around our six adoption steps, which we have um, crafted as a framework based on the work that we've done with many districts like Baltimore um, across the country over the last several years. And as I said a little bit ago, we really do believe that how you adopt matters so much. And what we found is that many districts um, have room for improvement in how they approach their adoption process. You know, often there's a real over-reliance on the publisher presentation. Um, The process may be relatively quick. We've got a lot of examples of you know, here are three options in the library. Teachers come and look at them and vote for what works for you. Um, so we really help districts through this adoption steps feature and our direct support in the field, help them work through this process 
to really get clear first on the first two steps are really around your local context, which I've mentioned a few times, like what's your vision for instruction? Who are your students? Who are your teachers? What's your history been like with past adoptions? If you are going from, you know, a more traditional basal program to a newer program that is designed really differently, it's important to at least be aware of what that shift is going to entail in terms of professional learning for your teachers. Um, so we really help with that context setting is the first step. Um, we then help folks with those local priorities winnow the choices. So again, many green options, you're winnowing your choices down to a handful of options that you then investigate more deeply. There are lots of ways investigation can look, can look like a book study, can look like a pilot, it can look like a conversation with the publisher to get more information. And that feeds into informing your decision. It's important up front as part of your process setting to get clear on how you will make a decision. That's one misstep we see in a lot of districts, you know, maybe piloting two programs with different sets of teachers and not being clear against what criteria you're evaluating those programs at that point. And you've got a group of teachers who love this program and a group of teachers <laughs> who love this program. And you don't have a clear way of saying, you know, here's how we're going to gather some concrete information and make a really informed decision. And then the last step of the process is, is hugely important, and we've talked less about so far, but it's actually planning for implementation and the ongoing professional learning for teachers and leaders, not just in the launch, but over time. So, Lori, what you were talking about with the learning you did through the adoption process is awesome. We love, you know, a good adoption process means that those who are a part of that process are really learning about what great, how, what materials look like that reflect elements of quality, the standards, et cetera. But we want all teachers to have that. And so districts really need to have a plan for what's that ongoing learning curriculum specific and embedded in the day-to-day -day work that's going to help teachers really understand, you know, why are tech sets designed in this way? What are the best ways to teach vocabulary? What does it mean to really make sure your students have those windows and mirrors? And especially if you are making a shift to a different type of program or you know, you've traditionally created your own materials, what it takes to do that intellectual preparation that we were talking about at the beginning is a huge shift. And so teachers need to not only learn what that looks like, but they need ongoing opportunities to practice with each other to get that ongoing development so that it's not just like, here are new materials, best of luck to you, um, but actually job embedded professional learning that is ongoing. I can't emphasize that enough. It does, it's not just the first year. It's got to keep going. Um, that helps teachers really figure out how to make those materials come alive for their students. And so that planning for that type of implementation is the sixth step. And so that feature online is really just meant to, you know, sort of provide some inspiration and some resources to help districts through that process. Um, so with each, within each of the steps, you'll see some key actions that happen. And then you can click on the resources button and you'll see some different resources. Could be a blog post showing how a district did do this. Um, we've got a great case study on the, the work that Baltimore City did um, that shows you know, what that process looked like there. Or it could actually be a tool to say, you wanna create an instructional vision. Here's a tool that might help a team walk through that process. So I think an adoption process that's done really well takes a lot of capacity, takes a lot of time an effort. Um, this is designed to be sort of a support or help for districts who are engaging in that. And again, I would say, you know, reach out to us if you are in that place as a system, because um, there's a lot there. And we also, you know, are always happy to have that conversation to think about how we can support. 
Thank you. That was really helpful. I'm sorry. I'm outside now. You can hear if you can hear. Um, uh, but there are so many incredible resources that I don't think I realized before yeah. getting on to Ed Reports and and before going through the adoption process. And then you know I started investigating. I was like, oh my gosh, it's more than just help with materials. So that's it's very exciting. <laughs> Yeah. And I would encourage everyone on the website, you can sign up for our um, email list as well. And about once a week, we send out new resources. So again, could be a blog post of, you know, what a teacher is doing to advocate for materials in their school system, um, how a school district did an adoption, a tool. So in addition to getting notified when there are new reports out, we do release a ton of other resources and information. Um, which like you, Lori, I think before I came to Ed Reports, I had no idea the breadth of resources that are there beyond our reviews and reports. So you guys shared a ton of amazing information with us today. I'm wondering, is there anything that we missed that you want to share before we wrap up? If not, we'll move on to... Uh, you know, you have to give us a piece of advice before you leave. <laughs> we did prepare you too. Sometimes, sometimes we just throw it on people. We do, we do just throw it on people a lot of times. We appreciate the preparation. <laughs> Puts the pressure on for our advice to be really good though. <laughs> That's right. actually a really good point. We should just do it spur of the moment and not let anybody know. <laughs> we'll feel better about their quality. <laughs> or, you know, send a little prep, but then... Don't let everyone know that you got the chance to think about it before. <laughs> so what is one piece of advice you would leave for our, our listeners? My advice is that teacher voice in all materials work really matters. And so I know there are many teachers listening to this mm -hmm. and really knowing the power of your voice in either advocating for great materials and being part of an adoption process in really understanding what materials you have and advocating for professional learning and support around those materials. Um, we do a lot of work with teacher leaders as well on our team. We have a fellowship um, where we work with teacher leaders over the course of a year and really support them in developing their advocacy. And I am always surprised to hear folks in that group who are really incredible teachers and leaders in their communities saying, like, I didn't know I had a voice that could be listened to and was so powerful in this conversation. Um, and so I would just highly encourage any teacher listening to think about how you can build your own awareness of why materials are important, what you're looking for in materials, how your materials are working for you, and get to know the process and the landscape in your local community to understand how those decisions are made. And Use your voice, whether it's sharing with colleagues, talking to your administrators, talking to district folks, um, sharing things online, like your voice as the people who spend time every day in the classroom with students is so critical to making the best materials decisions. And so I can't encourage enough you to use that voice and to speak up for what is going to help you um, really have the best experience with your students and help your students be as successful as we know they can be. That's great advice. <laughs> and it's funny how often it, to me, that, I mean, not funny, it's sad how often that voice is left out from this process. Mm -hmm, um, sure. And so I think just knowing, like, even if no one is asking you, you have a space to say, like, this matters. This is important for my students. Here are the things that really matter in materials. Um, and hopefully, you know, you can find information on Ed Reports that can help you 
um, get some inspiration. We've got some great stories around teachers who have advocated in really powerful ways and made a huge difference with their voice. Wow, that's better than the two buttons in the coffee can method that we used at our district. (laughs) You got two buttons and there were coffee cans by each set of materials. We had an hour to look at them. Fantastic. Teacher voice right there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay. So now my advice. Um, I I think the thing that I've heard over and over from teachers is um, I don't want to adopt new materials because I've spent so much time creating my own mm-hmm. or the, it's just going to be scripted and tell me what to do. I've been teaching for 15 years. I think I know what, you know, so I would, my advice would be not to see materials adoption as a loss of autonomy, but, or, or a comment on your ability but really is the opportunity to free up your time, uh, to spend time with your students and to really spend time becoming um, a better instructor. We all know that our best lesson has yet to be taught. And so we want to work with that and, you know, work with the new materials as a way of strengthening us as teachers, as strengthening our instruction and supporting the students who need us so very much. And especially now where the support for students has changed so much and our ability to work with them directly um, has been impacted, you know, nationwide, worldwide. Um, so I think the other thing, too, is that sometimes districts don't consider, if they haven't gone through getting buy-in from teachers, they don't consider the emotional toll on taking a, a teacher from a particular methodology in one program and completely pivoting to something new. And again, it's not a commentary on what you've been doing. It's a whole district moving together to surround kids, to to give them what they need, and to make sure that you're giving them the best start in life that you can, because our future depends on it. And so it's okay to to let go of those things, to not feel hurt by it, but to see it as a place to grow and learn. We love that. That's excellent advice yeah. from both of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, well, we are so grateful that you took some time out of your day, actually a lot of time out of your day to talk to us. And we know our listeners are just going to value this podcast so much because Ed Reports is something that we talk about constantly. And uh, just to hear it directly from you is really important. Yeah. So thank you. I learned a lot today. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope our listeners do too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having us. It was wonderful. Really enjoyed the discussion. Good. Thank you.